The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovedo.com. Our sermon text this morning is Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andrew. Um, After hearing what Andrew just read, I could admit that I would be the poorest preacher in the land if I could not connect this sermon to Christ here in Psalm 16. But even if I... We're the only one working. It would be in vain. So let's go to the Lord and pray that his spirit would be with us and that we would see Christ this morning in this psalm. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your people asking for you to work and be present with us through your spirit, that your word would be opened up to us, that we would see plainly what we need to see each of us as a church, uh, each of us as individuals, that this word would be made alive as if on the road of Emmaus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I know you all can look and reflect on the, the joys of creation each and every day. When I look out and I see that all the Lord has made, it's just so perfect. Uh, everything seems almost to be in its perfect place. When we read back in Genesis, we see that the Lord created the the seas, the dry land, and the sky, and then he inhabited these realms with creatures. He filled the oceans with fishes, and then he also uh, made birds perfectly suited for life in the air. But the Aninga, the Aninga is a strange creature. The Aninga dives into the water. Aningas are those birds as Floridians you all are likely familiar with. You see them perhaps today on your way to church or on your way going home. They're the birds that we typically see in the retention ponds or the mini lakes here in central Florida, perched up on the branches, their arms spread out, basking in the sun. And you may think, well, talking about a water bird, that doesn't seem that strange. I I see water birds all the time, right? 
We have ducks, and we have ospreys as you cross Lake Jessup on the 417. And you go to the beach, you see mighty pelicans diving into the water. It's not that strange to see a water bird. But anangas are very different because unlike these other birds, they don't have glands that secrete oil so that their feathers don't take in water. Rather, when an aninga dives into the water, it knows it's going to become completely saturated. And it's become so saturated that when it gets out, it's going to have to dry off in the sun before it could fly or do anything else. And that's what we usually see in an inga, facing away from the sun, wings out, just sitting there, confident even, as if it didn't have a predator in the world. It's almost as if the survival instinct is completely removed in this moment as it sits there, drying off in the sun. For this reason, I think, with Inigo's confidence especially, this is a perfect avenue into the world of this psalm for us this morning. Because this psalm is about a confidence. It is about a trust in the Lord. And we are a people who are, are quick to doubt God. So this is a great word for us this morning. And this psalm calls us to be confident in the Lord, even in the face of death. And more than that, it's fundamentally a psalm about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can check that box, I hope. <laughs> because the Son of God, he came down into a realm he seemingly didn't belong. Jesus Christ entered into our sin, and entered into our death, that he would be brought back to life, confident. And he sits right now at the right hand of God the Father, basking in the glory that was his before the world was created. David has this same sort of confidence in God when he wrote this psalm. And this psalm teaches us how to take refuge like David. And like great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. And from this psalm we learn that refuge in God is fundamentally a delight in God. That results in security, joy, and life. In order to show you this idea that permeates the psalm, delight. And you'll notice the title of this sermon is Refuge Slash Delight. Either one of those would be perfectly suitable they replace one another in this idea. That here in this psalm, refuge is delight. We see that word delight appear in verse 3, but also throughout the psalm we see words as King David reflects on his relationship with the Lord that really does invoke the type of emotions that would accompany these things. It would be delight. Words like pleasant and beautiful in verse 6, glad and rejoices in verse 9, and life in joy in verse 11. David's refuge in the Lord is fundamentally characterized by delight. And like David, like Christ, we take refuge in God by delighting in Him. Delighting also in His people and delighting in devotion. The beautiful truth that we get to behold as we look at this psalm this morning is that God is our refuge. God is our refuge. But to take refuge, we must delight in Him. Now, David gives us a lot of different ways to think about the Lord. Portion, cup, the holder of our lot, the beautiful inheritance. But I want to focus in on two categories in particular. 
that drives us to delight in him. And that is that God is good and God is also our generous father. First, let's look at the idea of God is good in verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So right away in this psalm, we see that petition, preserve me, O God. The psalmist is going through something urgent. But immediately, immediately this psalm transforms into a psalm of confidence, of deep assurance in God. In you, I take refuge. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The psalmist here is claiming God as his sovereign Lord, the one who is in control of his life, and he wouldn't have it any other way. We may stop and ponder and think that maybe David is being a little hyperbolic here. You're only good? Really? But if we think about it, we enjoy so many good things in this life. And we'd be fools to trade any of those things for God. All the joy, all the blessedness, all the good things of this life are ultimately an overflow of His goodness. And that's why enjoying things becomes all the more better if it's in reference to God as the one from whom all this spills over. I imagine you have the same tendencies that I have in my life. Sometimes I become obsessed with new things. Uh, right now I'm learning to surf. I don't say that to like look cool or, or get thumbs up from John Boardman back there, but rather because this is the type of thing in my life that can completely derail me from higher priorities, or it can be something that I revel in if I understand it as a good gift that God is giving me. All these things are so much enjoyable when we see the giver who gives the gift. When that is not lost in us. When we can enjoy the things in life because God is our only good. When we have a pure reference to Him as the one who gives us all these things, we can truly be satisfied whether we have them or not. So David here orients our delight in God as our ultimate good. He also orients our delight in God as our generous Father. I'm going to jump down to verse 5 here. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. That might sound, not sound as obvious to you, that I'm saying that from this verse we get this idea that God is our good and generous Father. But just think along lines of just your normal experience. The, think about an inheritance. Who typically receives an inheritance? A child, right? Well, who typically gives an inheritance? A father. And so if we want to think about the fatherhood of God, which we've been learning about and going through the Lord's Prayer... We can trace it back all the way to the beginning of creation with Adam. And we learn in Luke's genealogy, as he traces Jesus back all the way to Adam, that Adam is called a son of God. And we could flash forward to Abraham, our great patriarch in the faith. And in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur, telling him to leave his father's house 
that he would be in his inheritance, taking on the role as a father to Abraham. And we also see in the kings of Israel, it's not as explicit, this idea of the fatherhood of God to individual Israelites, but it is explicit as it relates to Israel as a corporate nation, God's firstborn son, and towards kings as representative of Israel. David, the king of Israel, the author of this psalm, knew intimately his relationship to God as his father. And it's such a blessing to us that when we look forward beyond David, to the one to whom David pointed, to Jesus Christ, we learn about that wonderful blessing to be able to pray, our Father who art in heaven. So when David is talking about inheritance there, I, I think it's okay to say that he has this idea of God the Father in mind. And more than that, a generous Father. The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. All of these words, portion, lot, line, inheritance, they are supposed to remind us about the distribution of the land to the Israelites after the conquest of Canaan. But something more uh, important is going, some, going on here. And that's the, the substance of this inheritance is much more than land. God is such a generous father that he gives us himself. And this generosity astounds me, especially when we think about what Paul says in Ephesians 1, when God gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our inheritance. Not only does God make us co-heirs with Jesus Christ, but he gives us himself in order to promise that he's going to give us himself. That generosity is so amazing. How can we not delight in him? And truly, we're like the Levites of the Old Testament. All the tribes of Israel were allotted a portion of land, but we are a kingdom of priests. There is no land that is our own, but the church goes throughout all of the earth. And we are called as the people of God to delight not only in Him, but to delight in each other. And this is the second way that I see the psalmist taking refuge in God. God is our refuge. But to take refuge, we must delight in his people. Look what, what the psalmist says in verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now there is some challenges in interpreting this phrase, excellent ones. Some scholars think it refers to heavenly beings, but I just want to point out another phrase in this verse, which makes me think it's the people of God, because these are the excellent ones in the land, that promised land that God is giving to his people. These are the excellent ones, the people of God, and the psalmist delights in them. But here, notice that the love of God isn't mutually exclusive with the love of his people. I mean, in verse 2, David says, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. And then in verse 3, he says, the excellent ones in the land in whom is all my delight. So which one is it, David? No good apart from God 
or the excellent ones in all the land in whom is all your delight? Which one is it? The answer is, do you delight in the Lord or do you delight in the excellent ones? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Love for God and love for people go hand in hand, especially when it's extended to the household of faith. And this is exactly why Jesus could summarize the entirety of the moral law in that great command that you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus gave us, as profound as that is, a new commandment. Not that we should love each other as we love ourselves, but to love each other as he has loved us. Just the other day, I was complaining to my wife that it's, it's so hard to share the things you truly enjoy with other people. You know, I work at a job where I get the joy of listening to music, uh, much of my tasks throughout the day that don't require too much thought. And so over the years, I've just kind of have this playlist of albums I go to and, and put on repeat sometimes. And I become so intimately familiar with them that I start to pick out all of the layers of the different instruments, the accompaniments in the song. Some of these albums, like I know where my favorite cymbal crash is. It's like really weird how intimately I know these things. But if I were to, I don't know, no one gives CDs away anymore, but like if I were to somehow say, hey, go check out this album, it's awesome. It fills my day with joy. And then you go home and listen to it, you're like, yeah, it was all right, it was cool. I liked it. Uh, I don't know why you're so so excited about it, but I'm like, what? Did you not hear what was going on? You know, no one has that sort of intimate knowledge of these things that, as I do, and I know we're all different people, and the way that our preferences work, it's kind of like our palate. It develops over the years. We become accustomed and also seek out particular flavors, and when it comes to music, it's especially this case. That's why like, things like concerts are such transcendent experiences because it takes all of these individuals who are supposedly like you or they at least like this one thing as much as you and it puts them all in the same place and you're just like there in it together. It's a special moment. But the reality is that the most important thing in my life, my relationship with Jesus Christ, is something I share with each and every one of you. We delight in the same thing. So that should lead us to a delight in one another. And I know that there's so many quirks about being a human being, you know, the awkwardness we may feel, or this idea that perhaps we don't share as much in common when it comes to our general interests or walks of life. But the reality is, we do share in that same declaration that Jesus is Lord, and that should make all of the rest fall away as we delight in one another. We also need to remember that our delight in one another is a witness to the watching world. Jesus told us that the way people will know that we are His is by our love for one another. So it's critical that our love it's not just for our own enjoyment, but it's for the sake of the world. And David directs our attention to the world and the sad state of affairs outside of the church in verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. 
So even though this psalm is about delight, we can't delight in everything. And here we are particularly called away from idolatry, even the naming of idols. And it's not like taking the name of a false god upon your lips is inherently sinful. But right here it's connected particularly to acts of worship. These drink offerings that will not be poured out by the psalmist. Mosaic law is steeped in this idea of not taking even the names of these gods on our lips. And it's supposed to be a protection of God's people because idolatry is so dangerous. I want us to focus on what David says is the results of those who chase after other gods. And we can make this as broad or as specific as you want. You may think of it as literal idolatry or anything else that really puts God as less than something else, fundamentally violating the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me, no other things even before me, nothing before me. David says that their sorrows will multiply. Their sorrows will multiply. And I don't want to be insensitive here or start pointing the finger out towards the world and make us get into this us and them mentality. When the truth is that we can be so quick to think of ourselves as better than others, falling into this mentality. And when we do this, we completely miss the point. Because one of the ways we can better love our neighbors is actually for our sorrows to increase for them because their sin increases their sorrow. Think about this in terms of our call to delight in one another. What if our sorrow for unbelievers drove us to a greater delight in one another for the sake of our witness? If we understand this, the call even to love our enemies is really a call to love each other as the church, as God's people. That is a way of taking refuge. Another way we see David taking refuge is in devotion. God is our refuge. But to take refuge, we must delight in devotion. We must delight in his word. Look with me in verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. The opening chapters of the book of Proverbs reads like a father's instruction to his son. And God, as our good and father, good and generous father, also instructs us. And he does so primarily through his word. And we need to remember that this psalm, a psalm of David, the king of Israel, really points us back to the, the beginning of the Psalter, Psalm 1 and 2, which really frames it for us as this picture of the righteous and faithful king who meditates on God's law day and night as the way of blessedness. And in Deuteronomy, we learn about the regulations for a king and that they were to know intimately God's law all the days of his life. And this is exactly what we saw in our scripture reading today. As David calls his son Solomon in 1 Kings 2 before he went the way of all the earth. That he would be in God's word. And I think at this point of the psalm, we're supposed to assume something. It says in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. 
And I realized that we can read it two different ways, that, well, the Lord instructs me, gives me counsel, and my heart also instructs me. Or we can read it as if the psalmist has already been in God's word in the morning and in the night also, my heart instructs me. He's already been in God's word, meditating on his law. And we see that the way of blessedness in Psalm 1 becomes the way of blessing. I bless the Lord. So it's not only the Lord who gives him counsel, but this heart that's informed by his word instructs him. His counsel is a twofold counsel. And really, if I were to be honest with you, the counsel of my heart when it's not informed by God's word is absolutely worthless. It's absolutely worthless. We are sometimes our own worst enemies. It's sometimes hard to be alone with our thoughts. And I know many of you have likely had the same experience that I've had, where I wake up in the night with this constant roll of self-criticism and judgment. We need to train our hearts by God's word so that even our own self-talk would be informed by him. We want this life, the life of blessing God instead of cursing ourselves. This is going to sound audacious, but let us be kings. Let us be kings when it comes to our relationship with God's word, that it's something that we meditate on day and night. We need to seek refuge. And we seek refuge vertically in our relationship with God by delighting in him. We seek refuge horizontally by delighting in his children, God's people. And we must seek refuge also internally by delighting in devotion, by delighting in his word, by hiding it in our heart. And verse 8 is going to summarize what all of this is for the psalmist. All of this refuge. I have set the Lord always before me. All the psalmist delight can be summarized in this verse. I have set the Lord always before me. And what's the result of this? Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This brings us to the results of refuge. Security, joy, and life. God is our refuge, and when we take refuge... We experience security, joy in life. Verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I mentioned earlier that this is a psalm about the resurrection. And it's here in verse 10 that we see that connection explicitly. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. This verse is a major part of the apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. Peter quotes it in Acts 2 in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, and Paul quotes it in Acts 13. It's an explicit prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. This word Sheol is just, here in this context, just the ordinary word for grave. But this name, Holy One, it's related to the word 
of God's covenant loyalty to his people, his chesed love to his people, his steadfast love, it's translated in the ESV, his faithfulness. The idea here is the, the faithful one, the one who is covenantally loyal to God, will not see decay in the grave. This passage is about Jesus, but it's not only about Jesus. This is a psalm of David. It's about him and his trust in the Lord also. And this is significant because this is what is going to drive home for us the idea that David's hope is also our hope. And it is our hope in such a profound way because Jesus has already displayed for us that his hope was fulfilled in the resurrection just like it will be fulfilled in ours. So we don't have all the historical context in this psalm as to why David would be saying this. There are connections to his life when he was in a foreign land freeing, fleeing from King Saul, for instance. So we don't have that. But one thing I am certain of is that David was confident in the resurrection. It's not a foreign concept to the Old Testament. We even see it as the author of Hebrews connects it to Abraham's offering of Isaac on the altar. He was able to go through such an incredible thing because he believed that God must be able to give life to the dead. Like Abraham, God made a covenant with David. And in that covenant, God promised David one who would sit on his throne forever. And David believed this promise. And that's exactly what we see in Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath uh, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus was raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So here, Peter is calling David a prophet, even of his pinning of this psalm. And he understands that God's promise to one who would sit on the throne would be one fulfilled in the long-awaited Messiah. And though he would taste death, it would not be able to hold him. Even in death, Jesus took refuge in God. And he experienced the joy, the security, the life that results in refuge. Let's think back on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Oftentimes, our, our minds go to the Garden of Gethsemane and that agonizing prayer that he prayed with the Father. But just hours before, I find it so incredible to ponder on this that in the upper room, when he's praying to the Lord before he's going to be betrayed, before he's going to be crucified, that his disciples would be fulfilled by his joy. They would be fulfilled by his joy. All that in light of what was just about to become of his life in death for us. So here he takes refuge in God. The author of Hebrews tells us it's for the joy that is set before him. And oftentimes when we think about his experience on the cross, we think of his quotations of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But think about his last words. Father, to you I entrust my spirit. He took refuge in God. And he reaped the most blessed reward of refuge, life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. And he will return from there, bringing life with him when he gives life to our mortal bodies in the resurrection. Is this resurrection of hope of David's yours? My uncle died this week. He's someone I've prayed for every time we really have a pastoral prayer. We have those moments of silence. And I'm not so bashful as to not exploit this intimate moment in my life and ask you that question. Is this resurrection hope yours? Because we will all be like my uncle. We will all be like David. We will go the way of all the earth. If the Lord tarries, and whether or not he tarries or returns an hour from now, is that resurrection hope ours? That will be the determining factor of whether or not we're raised to eternal life. May it be so that the Spirit sows the seeds of faith in our hearts, that this resurrection of Christ would be ours today. So often we look at the, at the resurrection of, as something that's going to happen in the future, and it ultimately is. But the New Testament bears witness to the fact that this resurrection life is ours when the Spirit gives new life to our hearts. That the the inbreaking of the new heavens and the new earth is in a profound reality already ours. And being new creations, new creatures in Jesus Christ, it's such a profound thing to think about our joy in Jesus Christ. When we think about that resurrection hope being alive in us now, that's joy, that's security, that's life. When an Inga dives down into the water, it knows its wings are going to become so saturated that it can't even move, it can't fly, and it has to sit perched and dry off. And sometimes our seasons in life can feel that way. You know, we can have a, a season of backsliddenness, or we can have even a season of mundane devotion, of faithfulness nonetheless. But at the same time, it, it still makes us wonder what God's doing in our life. But the same call for us who are struggling in sin or, all, uh, or for those of us who are being faithful in these ways of taking refuge in God, we still need to get up. We still need to pray. We still need to trust. We still need to worship. We still need to be connected with God's people, knowing that all the while God is going to be able to bring us out of what we're going through. And we're going to be refreshed in the sun. We're going to be refreshed in Jesus Christ. Once we begin to see Christ in this psalm, it's profound to realize not only is it about him, but it's by him. And in verse 3, the psalmist says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Christ delights in you. So take refuge in God. Delight in him as your ultimately good and generous father. Delight in his children, your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. 
delight in his word, but also delight in Christ, for he delights in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that left in our own strength, we cannot believe or live out this Christian life. So we ask you to enliven our faith all the more, to sustain us in whatever season we are in, that we would know what it is to take refuge in you through delight. We ask all this with the resurrection hope and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.